All right, I, I'm going to share one of the more humiliating stories uh, of my life, okay? So uh, it was sixth grade, all right? It was drop everything and read time, and which is reading time. I don't know if you guys still do that, but we call it drop everything and read time, all right? And every day after lunch, we take 30 minutes, get quiet. You could even move at different places in the classroom and, and just read quietly. But this is what would happen is kids would move different places, and then that's when the harassment would begin, okay? Because you're out of the watch of the teacher because you're not at desk level anymore. You're down at ground level. And so I was one of the kids that got harassed, okay? And so one time I'm reading, minding my own business, and this girl, Christine, okay, and that's her real name, <laughs> and Francisco... Uh, they started making fun of my chicken legs, okay? And that bothered me. And I, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking he still has chicken legs. But they started calling my legs chicken legs, and this infuriated me because I was also late to bloom. I had, I had not even met puberty yet. And I was just a very small, skin, I know it's hard to believe, but skinny child. And I was just sitting there, and I hated my little skinny legs. And Christine and Francisco just keep coming at me, saying I have chicken legs. Now, I can't remember if this was just one drop everything and read time or if this was several where this happened, like every reading time, where they would just kind of make fun of my legs by calling it chicken legs. And then I would get furious, and they would, like, get gleeful about it, almost as if to say, like, why are you so bothered about you have chicken legs? We're just speaking the truth. And so... One day, I just had enough, and I said to Francisco, I said, I'm going to fight you if you say that one more time. And Francisco, he didn't even say it. I think Christine said it again. <laughs> Christine said it again. I said, that's it, dude. And he was like, I didn't even say it. And I said, that's it, all right? So I waited. I wasn't about to fight in the classroom. I had enough class to not do that. And so I waited, though. Right as soon as class gets out, right outside the classroom, uh, Francisco comes out. I go, hey, we're going to fight. Now, here's the only problem. Francisco had fully gone through puberty, okay? <laughs> he was, like, he was like honestly six foot, all right? He had a mustache. Like, there was, I could not. Like, this was a bad idea. But my anger had overtaken me at this point. And so I said, Francisco, actually, I said, Francisco, Let's go, all right? And Francisco's like, dude, I don't want to fight you, man. Like, I, I, like, I don't fight. And I said, I, I warned you. Here we go. He's like, he's like, I didn't even say it. And so I just start swinging at him, okay? I'm also not strong, okay? And so I'm swinging at him. I'm missing. He's, he's big enough and strong enough that one of my swings, he just grabs me by the wrist. And now I can't even move that arm. So then I start swinging this arm. And then he grabs both my wrists. And he's strong enough that I can't even do anything about it. Now, mind you, the whole sixth grade's watching, and because this was right after class. And so I'm just flailing. I'm not about to give up. I do a reverse horse kick, okay? I start trying to do this move to him, trying to kick him. Well, he's so tall that he could even just hold me out so that my legs can't even reach him, okay? And so he, Francisco is kind of the whole time just being like, dude, stop, stop, like, stop. I don't want to fight you. And eventually I just go, fine, <laughs> like, after he's basically made it so I can't do anything to him. And I, I, I can't, I honestly can't remember <laughs> what happened, but I probably ran home crying is like <laughs> what probably happened. And a little epilogue to the story is I felt really bad about this whole scenario. And so I found Francisco's phone number. I called him up, and I said, hey, man, I'm really sorry. And I was crying. I was like, I'm really sorry I attacked you like that. And, and he was like, hey, I'm really sorry that we were making fun of you like that. And, uh, and then fun fact, me and Francisco became really good friends through junior high and high school. Like, we've, we were roommates at one point, actually, even. And so, uh, so I tell that story 
Because that story exposes a tension in me that I think is in all of us, and I think we're going to see in our story today. And the tension is this. When we have enemies, there's this tension in most of us that wants to hurt our enemies, and it's, uh, the tension is between that and this thing inside of us that goes deep, deep down, we know it's, it's not okay to hurt our, our enemies. Like a lot of us wrestle with that tension. Like we want to hurt our enemies, but we know deep down it's wrong. Even if you watch a lot of our movies and shows and art, it depicts this tension where we want to have vengeance or we want to hurt our enemies, but that won't quite give us what we want or that seems wrong to us in some way. And today in our We Want a King series, as we've been looking at the first couple of kings of Israel so far, King Saul and the not yet King David, we're going to see this tension play out. The tension between wanting to hurt your enemy and knowing deep down it's wrong. And so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 24. We're going to go through the story together. And we're going to just kind of have a good story time together. I've been saying this time and time again in this series. There are a lot of, uh, a lot of these sermons in this We Want a King series. We're, we're going to just spend a significant amount of time just hearing the stories from the Bible because that helps us to know the one story of the whole Bible. And so uh, I don't think we could get enough of that. And then we're going to talk about this idea of loving our enemies. This idea that you see Jesus, uh, like, command to his people. This idea that you'll see David enact and live out in the story today. This idea of loving our enemies. How do we do it? How, is it even possible? Why does God say this? And so how we're going to talk through that idea is we're going to talk through four things that our love of enemies has to be rooted in if we expect to love our enemies at all. Four things our love of enemies has to be rooted in if we even expect to do it at all. Because this is a tough, big command. How do we do it? And I think if we're rooted in at least these four things that we'll talk about, uh, we'll be able to love our enemies. So, uh, so, that being said, let's turn to 1 Samuel 24. Where we are at in the story so far is Saul was made king because the people wanted a king like Saul. He's disobedient and sinful. So God has begun, you know, has just sent the message to Saul saying, hey, you're not, your kids aren't going to be king. You're not going to be king. I'm anointing a man after my own heart who's going to be king. That guy is David. And we've seen David in a battle with a, a large man named Goliath. We've seen David now. He run all over the ancient Near East because Saul has become jealous of David and the glory that David's getting. And he's uh, trying to kill David all, all across Israel. And so uh, that's kind of where our story left off last week with Saul killing a whole bunch of priests because they inadvertently helped David, who was uh, a fugitive. So... Uh, our story picks up for us in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 24. If you're not familiar with the Bible, that's in the Old Testament. It's a historical book, meaning that it, it tells through his actual things that happen in the history of Israel. All right? So, verse 1. We'll read the first few verses and then stop. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men, the men of David said to him, 
Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Let's pause there. So David's been running all over Israel, running away from Saul, hiding in these different places. And as David hides, kind of all the outcasts of Israel have been joining him. All the people that are kind of maybe even against King Saul or have been persecuted by King Saul themselves, they start joining David and they form this little band of like lost boys or whatever, right? And they're hiding in caves and these different things. And so they hide in this cave and the best case scenario happens to them for when you have an enemy pursuing you. He comes in into the cave you're in, he doesn't notice you in the cave, and he starts to use the bathroom, okay? This is the best case scenario. In the, in the Hebrew, that where it says Saul uh, in English went to relieve himself, in the Hebrew it says cover his feet. In other words, Saul's pants were around his ankles. It's kind of another way to say that. And so Saul comes into this cave where David and his men are hiding. Saul's using the bathroom, nasty. And then D David's men are like, this is it. That's Saul. That's Saul. David, the, I, I know we all believe in God here. Like God brought, there's a lot of caves around here. Like this is it, David. Go and kill Saul. This is the best case. This has to be God saying like, hey, I, I've given the enemy over into your hand. Go and kill Saul. And so we, we'll see what happens, what David does, and then the aftermath of that. I'm going to read a lot of verses here. Verses 4b through 15. So David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded, persuaded his men in these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called out after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks you harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Let's stop there. All right, so as David's boys go, you gotta go, you gotta go kill him. And so David starts to creep up. And now, I don't know if Saul's robe is on him still, or he threw it to the side, like George Costanza style for everybody older in the room. And, but either way, it's gross what David's doing. And he cuts off a corner of his robe, and then immediately he just feels a ton of guilt. 
Because I, I wonder if he's going, man, there's part of my heart that wants to do what, these, what my men told me to do. And he, so, he goes back to his men and he goes, this is not right. We can't, we can't do this. So anyway, Saul finishes up what he's doing. He goes out of the cave. I'm sure David gives it a couple minutes. And David comes out behind him, behind him and he shouts to Saul. Now Saul is here with 3,000 men looking for David. And so David's shouting to the whole group, but he's shouting to Saul in particular. And he's just saying to Saul, Saul, why are you pursuing me? Why do you believe? I don't want to kill you. Why are you believing people that are saying that I want to kill you? Why do you pursue me this way? Even he shows him the corner of the robe. He's like, look, I could have killed you, but I didn't. I only cut off a corner of your robe. Let the Lord deal with us. Let the Lord bring justice to our relationship. And so now David just kind of, he's just pleading with Saul saying, hey, what's going on? I don't want to kill you. It's clear that I don't. And now in verse 16, we're going to see how Saul responds to that. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you're more righteous than I, for you've repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you've dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you've done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will destroy my name, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. All right, let's stop there. So, and that's where our story ends for today, but Saul responds to David, and you kind of notice this in Saul. There's these moments of clarity, it seems like, he has. And I don't know if this is totally a moment of clarity, but there's a part of him that's emotionally moved by what David did. And he's going, man, I can't believe you've been this good to me when I haven't been good to you. That being said, there is this duality to Saul that even in these moments of clarity, I have a hard time believing the, clar the clarity that, that, that he's having. And in fact, I think the, the narrative of Samuel kind of puts these clues to help us see that maybe Saul, uh, he's maybe not being as sincere as we think he is. I mean, some things we know about Saul, he really cares about what people in front of him think. That's been kind of a, a huge part of his story is he really cares what the Israelites in front of him think. And he does things in order to placate them or manipulate them or get them to do what he wants or he just does what they want. He, he is that sort of a king where he's really kind of afraid uh, of, of the crowds in front of him. And so he's here with 3,000 of his army men and David comes out and this, it's going to look bad if David goes, hey, I don't want to kill you, and remember, I've been working for you this whole time, and I love you, and then Saul's like, kill him anyways, right? It's going to look bad to the people of Israel who already David had a ton of favor with already. And so I, I just have a hard time believing that Saul is completely clear here and completely uh, repentant. We also know from the narrative that we've been through in, the, in this series is that Saul is he's kind of manipulative. Like he uses religion to manipulate people. He uses his own son. He tries to use his own son to hurt David. He tries to use his own daughter to hurt David. And so part of me thinks 
that maybe this is the moment where Saul finally sees the writing on the wall. And he's like, I'm not going to survive as king here. We just had this guy in a cave hiding with me. And he didn't kill me. There's no way that Israel's going to be okay with me being their king. And so perhaps his weeping is not for David, but for himself going, the end of my reign is here. And so then in front of everyone, conveniently, he calls David his son, which I don't know. As I just think, hey, this kid whose dad forgot to bring him over to Samuel when Samuel saying, hey, bring me all your sons. I just have a hard time believing that David doesn't have daddy issues and Saul's not praying on that. And he goes, my, my son. And then he brokers this deal with David, this public deal that everyone can hear. Hey, don't wipe out my family once you become king. Who knows if Saul thought David really was. Maybe, maybe he did. Maybe we could see Saul in a more positive life, but the, light, but the narrative so far isn't good. And then what we know from the story is David, he goes and he hides right? So David doesn't believe Saul. David's like, I don't, I don't believe that you're going to treat me good in this situation. I don't believe that you're going to hold up your end of the bargain. And then what's crazy is if you go read 1 Samuel chapter 26, it's almost an identical story plays out between David and Saul. So clearly Saul is not being genuine in at least some ways. And David feels he's pursuing him in certain ways. And so this is this very famous story. This is a very famous story in David's life where David is stuck in this cave with his enemy and he chooses mercy instead of vengeance. And it's the story of of David loving his enemy because you even see David go out and, and, and he has a heart of love for Saul. And every time I read this story, to me, it's, it's an echo of what Jesus taught about loving our enemies. Jesus, 1,500 or so years later, or whatever it was, my math might be wrong on that, what, what Jesus said about loving our enemies. Look at Matthew 5, 43 through 45. I don't think it's on the screen. I, I forgot to put it in there. But Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. David in this story seems to be tapped into this way of Jesus, or really a way of God, so many years earlier as he loves Saul. Now, this idea of loving our enemies is kind of insane to a lot of us. It seems idiotic. Even as, we, even as I maybe reread what, what Jesus said there and what Jesus taught there, there's some of us going like, wow, I do not remember it being that strong of language for us to, to love our enemies in, in, in that sort of way. And I've even noticed maybe if 30 years ago in the church you're, you're kind of preaching on loving your enemies, it was just kind of like, yeah, totally. But I've noticed it today when we talk about loving your enemies, it's almost offensive. It's almost like, should, should we follow this? Can we believe this? Is this outdated? Is this wrong? And so what I want to contend is I, I think Jesus is teaching us truly something that's part of the way of following Jesus. I think he's truly teaching us something that he wants his people to live into, and that's loving our enemies. 
But I think why it's so difficult for us at times to love our enemies well or even want to love our enemies, besides all the kind of cultural influences around us, I think it's hard because we, when we try to love our enemies, we are often rooted in the wrong things. There are all kinds of ways we try to love our enemies, and I think a lot of times we're rooted in our love of enemies or how we love our enemies or we're fueled by the wrong kinds of things. And so what I want to do for the rest of the sermon is I just want to look at four things that I think our love of enemies has to be rooted in if we want to follow this way of Jesus. If we want to live into this way of Jesus, I think there are four biblical things that our, our love of enemies has to be rooted in. And I think too many of us have ignored or, or have not realized that it, it is part of the fuel of, of how God would have us to love our enemies. And you can see it scripturally, okay? So bef- and before we get into that four, I, I do want to point out the loving your enemies conversation, which is a big and broad conversation that could go for weeks, that conversation is different than the forgiving your enemies conversation. And it's even different than the reconciling with your enemies conversation. And all of those things are really important conversations for us as Christians to talk through and think through and understand what God's word is really saying about each of those things. But today we're really, we're really only going to touch on the loving your enemies in the general broad sense, okay? So some of you might be going, well, what about forgiveness? Or you might be hearing it, oh, that means I have to do this or reconcile this way. I would just say, hey, those are different conversations for another day for us, okay? So four things that our love of enemies has to be rooted in if we hope to obey this command of Jesus at all, to be tapped into this way of God. Uh, the first The first thing enemy love has to be rooted in is God's justice and his vengeance. The first thing that God's, that enemy love has to be rooted in is God's justice and God's vengeance, which I know sounds weird. It might even sound unchristian to say that. But remembering God's justice and remembering his vengeance has been something that the people of God have done throughout history in order to love their enemies well. when, When an enemy is pursuing the people of God in different ways, the people of God have often fallen back on saying, God's justice will take care of this one day. I can have hope in this situation because God's justice will take care of this one day. His vengeance will come one day. You see this in verse 12 with David. David says, may the Lord judge Between me and you, may the Lord avenge me against you. David had an understanding and a hope in God's justice. It's not just there in the Bible. In Deuteronomy, in this kind of keynote address that that Moses gives to the people of God saying, hey, this is how how you need to live until God brings the one that can make our stony hearts hearts of flesh. He says, this is how you live. One of the things that Moses says to the people of God is do not take vengeance. Do not met out your own vengeance. Vengeance is the Lord's. Paul, when he's writing to the Romans in the New Testament church many years later, he quotes Moses to a church that was being persecuted at different times and different places. He says, not only don't take vengeance upon yourself, but he, he, or he says, do good to your enemies. Do good to the enemies that hurt you. Seek to do good. These are are wild ideas, but they're rooted in God's justice. 
Jesus himself. This is what was really wild to me. I didn't see this until I was studying this passage with some other pastors. 1 Peter 2.23, the friend of Jesus, who hung out with Jesus, the disciple of Jesus, the rock upon which this was all built, the gospel and, and Peter's leadership in different ways. 1 Peter 2.23, this is what Jesus says about how Jesus loved his enemies, what Jesus was rooted in. It says this, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Jesus, who comes to earth and gives this command to love our enemies, when his enemies were hurting him, reviling him, doing all sorts of things to him, what Peter says that Jesus did in order to love his enemies and continue to love his enemies is entrust himself to who? His father, the just judge. Not his father, the gracious, loving father, his, judges, his father, the just judge. The people of God have always been rooted in this idea of God's justice and his vengeance in order to love our enemies. If you, can't, if you don't believe in God's justice, if you don't believe that he's going to make everything that's wrong right one day, it's going to be really hard to love your enemies. God has always said, I will take care of it. I will take care of the evil done to you. And this... In, for us Westerners, that's us. Us Westerners and the way we think, this just seems absurd. I can, I can even tell from how, the, how I, you can hear a pin drop in here. <laughs> this idea of loving our enemies and it being rooted in God's justice seems absurd or wrong or vindictive or punishing. And I, I want to say it's probably because of the fact that we're Westerners. Because most of us, have, has had, we've had comfortable lives. Most of us have, and now some of us have seen some deep evil, but most of us have not. There's a, a, a Croatian theologian, his name is Miroslav Volf, and he talks about this idea of God's justice, and he talks about how Westerners sometimes have a hard time with it. And he goes, you know the people that don't have a hard time with it? The people that have lived in war-torn countries. The people that have had enemies that have killed their fathers and their mothers and their brothers and sisters and done all sorts of other evil things to the people they loved. Those people don't have a hard time believing in God's justice. In fact, God would be ridiculous to them if they didn't believe in a God of justice. And so church, my, my contention is this, is that the God that we see in the Bible, he is a God of justice and he is a God of vengeance. This is his own words to describe himself. And when I say that God is a God of vengeance, I mean that he's a God that one day every sinner will pay the penalty of their sin, either by God judging them or by God judging his son, and by God pouring out that vengeance on his own son, Jesus Christ. God is a God of vengeance. Vengeance either comes to the person that did it or it went to Jesus himself. And for the people of God, throughout millennia now, that's how we've rooted ourselves in enemy love. I could be mistaken, but even if you look at Martin Luther King Jr. and some of the ways he rooted himself in enemy love so spectacularly, was often rooted in God's justice. And so, 
church, if we don't have this understanding that God's going to take care of all evil one day, either through the death of his son or through some other sort of judgment, then it's going to be hard to love your enemies. I would wager you're probably not even going to be able to love your enemies if you can't hope in God's justice. He's going to take care of it one day. I think this idea is hard because I think we often make Christianity like a softer faith than it is. God doesn't expect us to love our enemies because it's the nicer choice, although I think that's some of the reason why. I think God expects us to love our enemies because only he can judge perfectly. Only he can deal with them justly. Only he can deal with them rightly. We can't in a way that he can. We are mistaken to not root our love of enemies in God's justice and his vengeance. We're mistaken. That might make us uncomfortable, but that's what God's people do. I think a beautiful picture of this is actually seen in this trial with Larry Nasser and the statement that uh, Rachel Den Hollander makes. I don't know if you know the story, uh, but there's a documentary. There's probably a few documentaries about this now. But Larry Nasser was this doctor for the American Olympian uh, female teams, and he served uh, children and young women. And what was found out was that he had been violating them. He had been uh, molesting them in all sorts of ways for many years. And Rachel, Rachel Den Hollander, who's a Christian, she was the first to kind of publicly say, this is what this guy's been doing. He needs to be brought to justice. And so eventually he is brought to justice. And, and what happens in his trial, besides that he's sentenced to all sorts of lifetimes to prison, is that all, all of his victims that wanted to could say something to Larry. And it, that's fascinating to watch in and of itself. And so she got up there as a Christian, and uh, she uh, said all kinds of things to him. It's, it's a pretty long statement. And I saw her at a different conference giving a talk, and she talked about how there's this one moment in her speech that basically all the media outlets took and pulled and said, hey, th isn't this so beautiful? Isn't this amazing? And it's this moment where she says, I forgive you to Larry in some sort of a way. And at this conference, she was saying, hey, what I hate about that is that my speech to Larry, everything I said to Larry, had a bigger vision of God where he is a God of goodness. He is a God of justice. And because he's a God of goodness and he's a God of justice, I could call out Larry's evil. And I could also forgive him because of that same God. And so I want to read this quote. It's a little bit of a longer quote. But it, this is kind of like the quote she wishes was read to uh, with by all the media outlets because she thinks it helps us to not have a truncated view of God but a much fuller picture of a God of love mercy and justice okay and so I'm gonna read this quote it's kind of long but I, I, I think you guys can handle it so this is Rachel talking to Larry who had sexually hurt her uh, this is what she says to him the Bible you speak of carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. 
Larry, I can call what you did evil and wicked because it was. And I know it was evil and wicked because the straight line exists. The straight line is not measured based on your perception or anyone else's perception. And that means I can speak the truth about my abuse without minimization or mitigation. And I can call it evil because I know what goodness is. And this is why I pity you. Because when a person loses the ability to define good and evil, when they cannot define evil, they can no longer define and enjoy what is truly good. When a person can harm another human being, especially a child, without true guilt, they have lost the ability to truly love. Larry, you have shut yourself off from every truly beautiful and good thing in this world that could have and should have brought you joy and fulfillment. And I pity you for it. You could have had everything you pretended to be. And this moment where Rachel says all this to Larry, I, I can't help but think that she is dancing this tension we talked about well. She is hoping in a God of justice, the God of a straight line who says there are some things that are wicked and wrong and evil. And he's a God of goodness. And he's the only God that can give you the sort of forgiveness you need, Larry. She simultaneously is able to hope in the God of goodness and love and mercy while also realizing he is a God of justice. And part of Rachel's own hope in God is because he is a God of justice. And so church, enemy love in recent years, it's felt so impossible to me. And then, you know, you watch whatever kinds of shows or media or whatever it might be, and I feel like constantly we're bombarded with the message, like, don't ever love your enemies. And the reason that is is because our society is nihilistic. Go look that word up later. And they don't have a hope in a God who's going to come and bring justice one day. But we as Christians can love our enemies well if we're rooted in the fact that God is a God of justice and vengeance. He is. And that is a good thing to hope in. That's part of the good news, I think, of the gospel in one sense. God is a God of justice. And so loving our enemies is impossible, but I think if we root ourselves in, in that, it can become easier. I'll say this as a little kind of additional thought to my own journey in loving my enemies. I would encourage you that have been harmed by evil people or have done evil to you as enemies. Find, find the healing that you need and the repair to your heart. Whether it's some sort of therapy or counseling or resources, I would encourage you to pursue that stuff. For, and maybe, maybe ask the Spirit to pursue you to the right things that are going to help repair you. Because the, the reality is that you can just grit your teeth and, and, and your soul just might get eaten alive over the course of your life. And I think there are different things we can do to kind of help repair but that being said, even if that, those things that people have done to you eat you alive for the rest of your life, God will bring justice one day. Even if that stuff eats away at you the rest of your life, God will bring justice to that. And it will be good and perfect and true. And even you will look at what God does and say, man, he is good. He is just. So let's hope in the God of justice, okay? That's the first way. First thing our, our love of enemies needs to be rooted in. Three others really quickly, quickly. The second thing our enemy love has to be rooted in is in our shared humanity with our enemies. 
I find it really interesting that one of the main reasons that David says he can't kill Saul is Saul is the Lord's anointed. And it's interesting to me because at this point in the story, David is also the Lord's anointed. And you could even argue David is more so the Lord's anointed because he's the most recently anointed and he's who God wants to be king. But something about Saul's anointing is what bothers David about harming Saul in any way. I think what David is seeing is that him and Saul have a lot more in common than what maybe the guys in the cave thought. I think David could see some of his own shared humanity with Saul. And so I think if we're going to love our enemies well, I think one of the ways that we have to do that is we have to see we have a lot more in common with our enemies than we'd care to admit. We, we hate to believe this, but they have the image of God on them as well. Our enemies do. We hate to see this, but they are victims of the sinful powers of this sinful world as much as we are. And perhaps that's why, even why they're harming you. Because they've been victimized by sin and evil powers. And God is a God who works his love into the world by loving enemies. And another way we could see that we have more in common with our enemies than we might think is that at different points in our own walk with, in, in, in this world, really, we were enemies of God. Colossians 1, Romans, both of these books talk about us pre-Jesus as being enemies of God. And yet what does God do is he loves himself into the world like he loves into the world and loves us into the kingdom so that we are no longer enemies, but we're co-heirs of the inheritance. Brothers with Jesus. Sisters with Jesus. And so I, I think if we want to love our enemies well, one of the th other things that we have to be rooted in is in our shared humanity. We have to see the Imago Dei on them, the image of God on, our en on, on the people we see as enemies. That can help us to love our enemies well. The third thing that I think our love of enemies should be rooted in is this, is we have to know that God's love is far bigger than we want it to be. God's love is far bigger than we want it to be. And we all need to hear that message, I think, over and over again. God's love is far bigger than we want it to be. God is on a mission to restore all things, and he is bringing his love into the universe more and more as time goes on. And he brings that love to everyone, whether they're an enemy or not. God's love is a lot bigger than we want it to be. I mean, just think how our political discourse would go if we realize how much God loved the people each side sees as enemies. Oh, doesn't God hate the people I hate? No, he doesn't. He loves them. I would say this. If you're going to walk away from God, walk away from him because his love is too outrageous. Right? Like, walk away because, like, man, he, he has claimed that he loves everyone, even the enemies, even the worst of us, and that there's a place for them in his kingdom no matter what if they would just turn to him. That's outrageous. But God's love is far bigger than we want it to be. Some of us in here, we walk around with a low-level hate in our hearts towards certain people 
that some of them we haven't even met, but people we see as cultural enemies or ideological enemies, and we have this low-level hate in our heart. And I would just say, if that's you, what you definitely have to hear is God's love is far bigger than you think it is. God loves those people just as much as he loves you. God's love is far bigger than you want it to be. Some of us in here, this sermon's been hard because you have some things in your past that are evil. And you're like, man, I've been an enemy. I've done these evil things. This is crushing to me. You also need to hear God's love is far bigger than what those around you would say it is. That's the goodness and grace of the gospel and why you can still be part of his kingdom and be loved by him. We need to know that in order to love our enemies well. All right, the fourth and final thing we, we have to be rooted in if we're going to love our enemies is we have to be rooted in wisdom and rejecting religious guilt. Rooted in wisdom and rejecting re- religious guilt. Here's what I mean. Uh, when it comes to this conversation of Christians loving their enemies, often I've seen the conversation kind of go uh, where the onus of the work to be done of loving our enemies is put on the victims of, of horrible things. The onus is on them to forgive and reconcile and love and be around that person. And I would just say that that is just not godly wisdom. Read the book of Proverbs. Read the different spaces in the Bible where you're going to find God's wisdom. And you're going to find that even in how we love one another, even how we love our enemies, takes wisdom. And so a lot of us could go away from the sermon going, well, I just got to be nice to everybody no matter what they've done to me. I don't think, and I might be wrong, I don't think that's quite what God would say. I think God would say, be wise in how you love those people. Even watch David. David was wise in how he watched Saul. I think Saul was probably a good distance away before he came out of the cave. And I think that David running and hiding and staying away from Saul after that moment as well was wisdom on David's part. And so we, we, we need to seek wisdom on what it means to love our enemies well. Instead of have this kind of blanket broad statement that often turns into religious guilt. And so then what happens is, is we have this religious guilt like, okay, I know Jesus said this, and so I just have to love my enemies. And then we get in this cycle of just pain over and over again, emotional pain, because even inside, we just feel guilty that we can't love our enemies. We feel like we're incapable to do it. And I would say that that religious guilt comes because often I think we're unwise in how we love our enemies. Now, again, Jesus' message to love our enemies, it is an extreme message. It is a difficult message to live out. I think we could only really do it by being empowered by the Holy Spirit. But I still think in the midst of that, I think we should stop this whole thing where the second someone in our small group just is having a hard time loving our enemy, we were just like, you you should buy them lunch or whatever, you know, like maybe there's a little bit more wisdom, okay? Maybe we can be a little kinder. Maybe we can just go, okay, I understand why that's so difficult. And then for us, we don't have to internalize and go, gosh, it's so hard for me to want to love this person in my life who's done so much harm to me. I must not be a Christian or I must not be able to follow Jesus. I don't think God would have that for you. Is loving our enemies difficult? Is it something we should step into? Is it something that might get us hurt at times? Yes to all of those. But we can have wisdom in the midst of that. And we can reject the religious guilt. Jesus' yoke is easy. 
He wants to walk you into an easy way, even though following Jesus is difficult. Another kingdom tension for us. And so root yourselves in wisdom when it comes to loving your enemies. I mean, even the early Christians hid from their persecutors. That's in the Bible. Uh, Jesus was wise about what he said around people so they wouldn't put him on the cross right away. He was wise about how he he, uh, loved his enemies. And so just don't feel bad about using wisdom to love our enemies. So uh, loving our enemies, it, it is so difficult. It is so hard. It feels impossible to a lot of us. And I would just encourage us, begin to root yourselves in some of these biblical things mentally thinking through it, praying through those things, hoping in the justice of the Lord, and then that's going to be what's going to make us able to love our enemies. But more than all of that, we have to root ourselves in Jesus. We have to see that he himself has a picture of the gospel is he is loving enemies. And that's how we even know the good news of Jesus today is because Jesus was willing to love enemies. We have to see that Jesus came to earth. He was within arm's reach of a whole bunch of his enemies, and yet he refrained from hurting them. We have to see that Jesus allowed his enemies to so hate and hurt him that they put him on an execution tool, the cross, nailed him to it, while that was the very mechanism that was taking care of their sin and their evil. Justice was being met out on Jesus in that moment. And Jesus had the power and strength to say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus' life is a picture of enemy love that he's extended to us. And so if we're going to love our enemies well, we have to understand that Jesus has done that for us. That that is the way that Jesus has worked his love into this world. And so church, may we... May we understand what it means to love our enemies. And may we, may we be rooted in the right things when we love our enemies. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you that you loved us, your enemies. God, thank you that you continue to love us on our moments when we become enemies to your way and you. God, I just want to lift up anybody in here who is having a hard time loving their enemies, where this sermon is just absolutely painful and agonizing to hear, would you reassure them that, you, that they are your son or your daughter, and that you love them, and that you are close to their broken hearts, that you're close to their internal, even just feeling brokenness because of their enemies. Comfort them, Lord. Love them. Speak to them. God, for those of us in the room who are the enemies towards others, convict us. Cause us to repent. Cause us to turn away from our evil. Help us to realize the damage we're doing. Help us to realize the things we're doing to people in this world. And then, God, for all of us, would we be so fueled by your love of enemies and your love toward us that we can love our enemies? 
And God, let it not be rooted in some kind of religious moxie or guilt, but let it be rooted in you, Jesus. Let us see how you have loved us and let that be what fuels us to love our enemies. God, we love you and we need you. Amen.